You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Welcome to open them in the book of Genesis. We're going to be in Genesis 22, but we'll start in Genesis 12. And as you've been studying the book of Genesis, I hope you understand the fact that the stories in the book of Genesis, think about it, they cover like a, several hundreds of years, right? From, from Abraham to, to Joseph and, and, and those stories. And the question is, well, if there's 700 years, obviously a lot of things happened during those, during those years. So why are these stories in there and why not other stories? You know, why tell this story, especially when the stories are like, these guys are like not very good characters. I mean, they're always messing. There's got to be some better things to say about these folks. And it's important to understand the fact that the stories in the book of Genesis ultimately, let me get the slides going here. Oh, slide down. Here we go. The stories in the book of Genesis are about God about the fact that God is sovereign and God is in control and he's going to fulfill his promise. Not because of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but often despite Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The stories are about God. They're not about heroes of the faith, but about God himself. And one of the questions that we want to ask this morning is, are you willing to follow God even when it doesn't make any sense? Are you willing to follow God even when there's nothing in it for you? Or does God only get to be served and followed when it's on my terms? Which is often the way we do it, let's be honest. The book of Genesis 22 is going to tell us a story. But in order to understand this story, we need to get a better idea of the context. Let's begin in Genesis 12 with perhaps three of the most important verses in the entire Bible. Genesis 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country your people, and your father's household, and go to the land that I will show you. I'll make you into a great nation. Lord, we just ask right now that whatever's happening out there, that your blessings will be upon the first responders and anyone that might be injured. May your mercy abound. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Pick it up again. I'll make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This promise, Genesis 12, 1, 2, and 3, might be viewed perhaps as like the thesis statement in the entire Bible. I think it's important to realize that the Bible's a story from Genesis through Revelation. It begins in a garden, and it ends in a garden. And the thesis statement of the Bible is chapter 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. The first 11 chapters kind of give you the problem, right? The problem, of course, is humanity can't simply accomplish what humanity was supposed to do. That humanity was called to be the image bearers of God, to let God be the ch- in charge, let God be king. And they said, no, we're good doing it ourselves. And God's like, okay, here's the solution. The solution's going to be Abraham. I'm going to call you, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to give you two things. And, and if you don't understand these two things, it's going to be hard to understand the, the Old Testament stories. The two things are land and family. I'm going to give you this land, and I'm going to give you this family. I'm going to give you this offspring. Through this family, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. And through this land, that'll be where the promise begins to be fulfilled. Ultimately, of course, the promises are going to expand to all families of the earth and throughout the entirety of the earth. But it's going to start with you, Abraham, and with your family and this land that I'm giving you. 
Now, the stories then in Genesis, and the reason, you know, why do we have these stories and not other stories, especially when they make the people look so bad and there's so many other things that could have been told? The answer is because these stories present either helps or hindrances to the promises of land and family. Most often, of course, they're hindrances to the promises of land and family. You know, Abraham goes to the land that God showed him, and what happens? He brought, he brought his nephew with him, Lot. But Lot becomes large and has a large family, and Lot becomes a threat to the land. This land's not big enough for both of us. You choose. And if Lot makes the wrong choice, the promises to the land of Abraham might not, might not happen. There, it's an obstacle. Most of the stories, of course, are promises that are threats or hindrances to the promise of family. One of the first promises, of course, happens with the fact that Abraham's 75 years old and he ain't got no kids. That's going to be a problem. In Genesis 15, God promises Abraham, don't worry about it. I'm going to give you so many descendants that they'll be like the stars of the sky and the grain of sand on the seashores. Now, of course, the problem is not that Abraham has no children. It's that Sarah is barren, which, by the way, the Bible seems to always put women down, but actually it doesn't. Uh, in that day, the women were the problem. If, if we don't have any kids, it's your fault. Uh, but every time a biblical story tells you about a woman that's barren, she always has a child. All barren women in scriptures have children. In chapter 16, of course, they wait 10 years. 10 years from when God said you'll have as many descendants as the stars in the sky, and nothing has happened. So Sarah does what we would all do. She takes it into her own hands. I know, I have a solution. Take Hagar, my, ser my servant. Have it, she'll have a child for you, and, and that will be the fulfillment of the promise. It doesn't sound like a real kosher thing to do in our day and age, but back then, a, a child to the slave would be Sarah's child, and it would be Abraham's child and would be an heir to the promise. So Abraham does so. 13 years go by, or 14 years, a, a year for Ishmael to be born, and then Ishmael's 13 years old. And the promise is reiterated to Abraham. Genesis 17. Abraham's now 99 years old. And so he laughs. <laughs> nice one. I thought, I thought you were going to say I was going to have, I mean, it's one thing, I had one at 86. It's not going to happen. I'm 99. I know you're like really good up there, but this is a little bit too much. He says, you know, how about, how about we cut a deal, Lord? How about if just Ishmael is the one? I love my son Ishmael. Let him be the promise. No, Sarah will have a child. Genesis 18, God appears with some, some uh, uh, angelic uh, uh, beings that appear to Abraham. And reiterates the promise. Sarah's going to have a child. And Sarah overhears it. And what does she do? She laughs. As we all would have. Genesis 18, verse 14, God says, oh, why is she laughing? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I'll return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Of course, Sarah's like, I wasn't laughing. Which, by the way, you know, lying to God is like not really a good idea, as if he doesn't know. I, I wasn't really laughing. I was kind of like, huh. Yeah, it was, it was more of a, huh, it wasn't a full-on laugh. Genesis 20, Abraham moves to the land of Gerar. Verse 1, it says, Abraham moved on from there in the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while, he stayed in Gerar. And there, Abraham said of his wife, Sarah, she's my sister. 
then Abimelech, the king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. This is a threat to the promise of the offspring of Abraham. If Sarah gets pregnant and she's now apparently fertile, God just said so, whose child is it? Is it Abimelech's or is it Abram's? Or Abraham by now. Now, some of you go, well, you know, she, he wasn't actually lying because technically it's like a half-sister. Look at what the text says. Now, Abraham took his wife, Sarah, and said, she, the text wants you to know he's lying. She's my sister. God appears to Abimelech and says, I, you ought not to do that. I'm like, oh, I didn't know. Okay, I'll let y'all put this out. And Abraham gets his wife back. Then we go to Genesis 22. Genesis 22, verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abram, or Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. This is a threat to the promise, isn't it? It's his only son. We'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit. Now, the test seems extremely outlandish to us, and it should make us really uncomfortable. Because let's be honest, sacrificing a son is just not something you're supposed to do. I suspect that if any of us heard God tell us to sacrifice our son or daughter in the fire, we'd say, that's not God. Of course, in the Canaanite world that Abraham was surrounded by, the belief was that the God who provided fertility was entitled to demand a right or a portion of what he had produced. That was the culture. Other cultures, of course, sacrificed their son or daughter to ensure more children. Abraham doesn't want or need more children, and he's pretty darn old by now. And we can come up with all kinds of reasons why this might have been acceptable back then, but I'm not sure that, to be honest with you, that I'm comfortable with any of them. The story is just hard to swallow. Take your son and sacrifice him? I think, and I, th I would think I would affirm, by the way, as a pastoral support, by the way, if any of you said that's what God's telling me, I'd say, nah, it's not God. But he told Abraham, ah, yeah, well, whatever, that's just not God. <laughs> In fact, by the time the book of Deuteronomy is written, a number of years later, this practice was still going on, even amongst the Israelites. In Deuteronomy 18, it says, uh, when you enter the land, remember they had gone off to Egypt in slavery after you know, Joseph and his descendants, and now they come back. When you enter that land, uh, don't imitate what they're doing, uh, the detestable ways, you know, the, because uh, you should not be found among you anyone who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire. So can you imagine, though, what's going on through Abraham's mind? For one, he's like, okay, if I do this, how many more years am I going to have to wait for the next one? I mean, it was 25 years till he was even born, and now we don't know how old he is, but whatever, how many more years? But guess what happens? Verse 3, early the next morning, Abraham got up, saddled his donkey, and took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place which God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I, go, I and the boy go over there. We will worship, 
and then we will come back to you. Interesting statement. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Verse 6. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham replied or answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Verse 9, when they reached the place that God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And you can only imagine what's going through Isaac's mind now, right? Verse 12, verse 11, 10. Then he reached out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out from heaven uh, to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Verse 12, do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you've not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his own son. So Abraham called the, that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Verse 15. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this, and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand in the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. And notice the promise of land and family. They'll take possessions of all the cities, and through your offspring, all the nations will be blessed. As you read the Old Testament story, as you continue on, it's important to remember that the story is about all the nations. God's desire has always been to bless all the nations. It's not just about these people, about the chosen ones. The chosen ones are chosen so that they may make him known to the nations. Now, the question is, what do we do with a story like this? I mean, let's be honest. I think we need to first off wrestle with the uncomfortableness of it. Okay, God provided the solution. He knew all along he wasn't going to actually make Abraham do it. Sorry, folks, I'm not content fully with that. He still took his son. He still bound him. He still brought a knife out. He was going to do it. If you're frustrated sometimes with God, like, not answering your prayers. And just realize, first off, Abraham was given a promise when he was 75 years old. Ten years go by, and Sarah says, I got a great idea. That doesn't work. 13, 14 more years go by. And God says, you know, here's what I'm going to do. I'm gonna do. 25 years later, he gets his son. I don't know about you, but I'm often really good at taking matters into my own hands. God calls me to do something. Okay, cool. I got, I, I got, a, I got a plan. 
So all I needed was to know where to go. I got, I got, I got my phone. I know how to get there. Now, obviously, it's not until we get to the New Testament that we find out the answer to the story. And the answer to the story, of course, is Jesus. And when you read the Old Testament, by the way, you have to ask the question, how do I find Jesus in this text? What's, what's going on? The story ultimately is about him, isn't it? There are all kinds of hints. It's a three-day journey. There's two others that go up to the mountain with them. Of course, they stay behind. Jesus was crucified with two others. He, Isaac carries his own wood. Jesus, of course, carried his own wood. Of course, Isaac was Abraham's beloved son or his only son. Three times, it says in cha chapter 22, take your son, your only son, whom you love, because you've not withheld your son, your only son, because you've done this and not withheld your, your only son. The story, in fact, is framed in chapter 22 with your only son and your only son. And the first time it says, the one whom you love. This, of course, reminds us of Jesus. Now, by the way, Isaac is not his only son. I mean, let's not forget this. This Ishmael, who is his son, whether you like or whether we like the means by which the son came about or not, that is his son. And, of course, chapter 25 says Abraham had six other sons. Isaac's not his only son. But, of course, when we go to the New Testament, we see Jesus. Matthew 3, verse 16, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was opened. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him, and a voice from heaven said, this is my Son, whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. In Matthew 17, at the transfiguration of Jesus, it says, while he was still speaking, a, a bright cloud enveloped him. A voice from the cloud said, this is my Son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. A good reader of the scriptures knows that the iteration of my son, my only son, and the one whom I love, that, that's Genesis language. And of course, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Abraham did not actually sacrifice his son, but God did. And again, there's great comfort in that, but it doesn't make the uncomfortableness of, but he was about to do it. But the reality is, God did actually do what Abraham was only about to do. In 2004, my wife and I, we have four kids. Uh, my wife had become pregnant with our fifth about uh, 16 weeks into the pregnancy, my wife went to the doctor. She had an issue that she had to go for regular ultrasounds. She comes back from the hospital. I had, I had took my brother to the airport, so I wasn't there. My wife's laying in bed. She's hysterical. And I'm like, what's going on? And she's trying to say something, but I can't understand what she's saying. And ultimately, the words come out. The doctor said our son, our child is dying, and there's nothing they can do. I'm like, well, of course they can do something. You know, I'm... I'm Studying for my PhD, I'm a pastor, you know, I've got all the hope in the world. Of course, oh, you know, and she's hysterical. There's nothing they can do. I'm like, no, 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 of course, of course, of course, they, of course they can. 
Over the course of the next several weeks, we're told our son had about two or three weeks to live in the womb. Over the course of the next several weeks, I actually, I wanted to be angry with God. I really, I tried really hard to be angry with him. And he wouldn't let me. Because every time I tried to get angry, he said to me, my son died that your son might live. My son died that your son might live. The reality is if God did not spare his own son, then will not God give us what we need? Romans chapter 8, of course, a very famous passage, verse 31, says, what shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died? More than that, who was raised to life? Is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. Oops, I'm sorry. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When the scripture, by the way, promises to give us all that we need, it's always in the context of all that we need to accomplish his will. Here's what you need. Clearly, Abraham didn't need to know for 25 years how God was going to do it. He just needed to wait and to be patient. I don't know about you, but I've gone through like months where I felt God was calling me to do something. My wife and I both had this, this uh, conviction, and we went to prayer. We got people together, and they came over our house, and elders within the church community. We prayed, and we fasted. And I said, here's what I told them, actually, about it. I said, I said we're going to pray and fast in the month of, of September, and by October 1, God's going to tell us. Why not, right? I mean, you know, give him a timetable. He needs to know what parameters to work within. Of course, in October, nothing. Didn't hear from the Lord at all. November, nada. December, January, February, March. Finally, the Lord spoke. I was like, I've got a calendar. I really would appreciate if you work on my timetable a little bit. Six months of silence. It's hard. And what God says is, I want you in the meantime to just be faithful. All you can do is, you know, we've prayed the Lord's Prayer. Give us today our daily bread. We're like, well, you know, tomorrow's would be helpful too. At least I can go to bed knowing I got food tomorrow. If I are, you know, if you've already provided for tomorrow, that'd be great. You gave the Israelites like a double dose on, on Fridays, right? You know, why not? Like, no. Genesis 22, verse 16. I swear by myself to close the Lord, because you have done this, 
and if not without your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. And note the promise. The promise is all the nations will be blessed because you obeyed me. You see, it's not just about us being faithful for our sakes. God's like, no, I've got a bigger work at hand. I'm trying to be, do a work for the sake of the nations, everyone around you. It's not just you that's in, that's in charge. Let me have control and just follow and trust so I can bless the nations through you. I'll multiply your your seeds as the stars of the, of the sky. Like, I, I ain't got no kids. I'm like 99. God may call you, and he might be calling you now. And it just sounds like he's silent. Or God may call you, and it may not make any sense. God may even ask you to surrender something. Something you might not be willing to let go of. And I often think, by the way, that one of the reasons why God is silent is because he knows that I'm not ready to do what he's asking me to do right now. I need to learn something before he can tell me. Because if he doesn't tell because if he does tell me, I'll just take it into my own hands. Hey, you know, Sarah, we've got a handmaid, let's take care of that. We problem solved. God's like, no, I'm not going to do it that way. You're not ready for your answer just yet. Are you maybe hindered in your walk with Christ because you're afraid that God's going to ask you to do something that you just don't want to do? Are you maybe bitter at Christ or God because God's taken something away from you that you really desperately wanted and you don't understand why? Are you struggling because God's just silent? There's a famous old song by, called It Is Well With My Soul, written by a man named Horatio Spafford. I don't know if you've heard the story. Horatio Spafford's life uh, was filled with a lot of tragic events. The first was the death of his son at the age of two. And in the great Chicago fire of 1871, it ruined him financially. He had been very successful as a lawyer and owned a lot of property, and all of it was destroyed. A lot of it was destroyed in the fire. His business interests were then hit even more economically in 1873 when there was an economic downturn. He was about to travel to Europe with his family. So what he decided to do was he sent his wife and daughters, I think he had three daughters or four daughters, on the, the ship with Adam. i got to take care of some business issues. I'll meet you in Europe. So he sent the family ahead. While crossing the Atlantic Ocean, the ship sank after colliding with another vessel, and all four of his daughters died. His wife survived, and she sent him a famous telegram. That's all they had back then. And the telegram said, saved alone. Soon afterwards, Horatio Spafford traveled again to meet his grieving wife. And as the ship passed that he was on, the spot where his daughters died, 
he wrote the words to the song. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regard for my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. For me, be it Christ, be it Christ tends to live. If Jordan above, above me shall roll, no pang shall be mine, for in death as in life, thou wilt whisper thy peace to my soul. And Lord, hasten the day when faith shall be sight. The cloud shall be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. If Jesus is Lord, if Jesus is Lord, then he's Lord of everything. And we have to be willing to surrender whatever it is he's calling us to do or to surrender. Because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Let me pray.